Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 441. This program is a merit of Baruch Binyamin ben Menuchelana and Miriam Baschayasar Altais, Yukosil ben Leir Rochel and Rochel Basli Bafarkash, dedicated by Pinchas Tadris ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altais. So we continue the month of Chaydish Adar. So though it's after Purim, but the edict and the instruction to us that we should continue increasing in joy applies. Because Mishanichnas Adar Marvin Besimcha. Adar is the entire month. And as we read, read in the Megillah and Purim, the whole month was transformed. So the whole month is a joyous month. And according to the rule, of Milam Bekedesh, that will always grow in everything that is holy and good and divine. So that means we have to increase in joy even after Purim. Though Purim, of course, is the highest level of joy. So you could ask the question, once you've reached the level of Adela Yoda of Purim, meaning a super-rational, beyond the rational, beyond the conscious level of, of Simcha, so how can you increase after that? And that's indeed, let's deal with that first question in this program. How do we increase in joy of, of other after Purim? <clears throat> so the answer is that joy is an unlimited resource. You never reach the end of Simcha. Now what is Simcha? If you're talking about joy, temporary joy from something material, so obviously anything that's mortal and everything that's limited and temporary, so the joy also is going to be a temporary one. But if it's a joy that's coming from Simchas HaNefesh, from the Spirit, from our connection to God, and from our connection to the way God runs our lives, and in this case, even the transformation of even the dark moments of life, like Purim was a terrible gzeda, could have been the worst possible scenario, and that was transformed. So it's a Yusin Ermin Acheshach, a great light, a light and a joy and celebration that comes from a very negative place, we're not talking about a limited joy. That's a joy of a ruchnizdike nature, of a spiritual nature. And just as the Ebishter's Ein Sof is infinite and endless and eternal and immortal, so too is the joy. And therefore, Whatever we experience on Purim, we can continue and actually increase and add to it. So it's true, the simcha of the day of Purim, of course, is unparalleled. But the simcha within us, we now have experienced joy for all these days, for 18 days already in this month, as we come to Yutas Adar, including Purim, so it becomes accumulative. And think about it psychologically. When a person is very happy and joyous, and they continue to maintain that momentum, they don't just stay there, they're always looking to increase. And it's a deeper level and a deeper connection, and the more joyous you are yesterday, you climb the mountain, the horizons of joy only expand. And it also tells us that we really have an unlimited resource within us. But you have to focus on your neshama, you have to focus on your mission in life. When you focus on materialism, materialism by definition can never fully satisfy someone. If you, if you continue to love the material, something that's not permanent, it will constantly keep making you hungry and thirsty. It'll never really be sated. Whereas in Ruchnius, we know it's, how can we say, that someone's has satisfied, that's an usher, but that's the material things. In spiritual things, we're never satisfied. And we continue to aspire and to grow further and further. And you don't get thirsty, you get filled, and that being filled only wants you to, only motivates and generates even more joy. So when you have that healthy attitude, it's an ongoing process. And that also explains The next question is what work is required from us in these days between Purim and Pesach? So you know the Gemara says that the month of Purim is always close, misomuch, it's close to the Gul of Nisan. This is relevant in Ashanamu Beres, in a leap year, when there's two others. 
So you would think that Purim would go in the first other, says the Gemara, no. And that's why we celebrate Purim. Purim cut in the first other, but the main Purim is in the second other, should be Misma Gula Gula. What does that teach us? That you bring Gulas close to each other. What does that mean? It's just a matter of proximity, one month to the next. No, it's a matter of essentially almost like a, um, like a uh, it's contagious. That when you're joyous, you want to right away connect it to the next level of joy. So Misma Gula Gula goes both ways. The joy of Purim catapults us and propels us into the Gula and redemption of Pesach. And the other way around is Pesach also infuses Purim, knowing that right after Purim is coming Pesach, so Pesach helps elevate also Purim. And they're very two different types of redemptions and therefore two different types of joy. With Purim being Melubish Beteva, as we discussed in last week's program at length, when it's manifests in nature, has that quality. Pesach is Nesbegoli. That's why Nisim, Nisim, Nisim revealed miracles that actually suspended nature. And each one has something that can contribute to the next. So what's the work that we have to do now? We go from the Gula of Purim, which is meaning finding in the Golas of this world. Golas means displacement. It means concealment. All levels of concealment. So Purim opened up the door and showed us that within the concealment, even when you don't say God's name and you don't see the miracle openly, but it's God's hand is at work. So what you're doing is elevating the very material and natural world to recognize that it's really a hidden divine choreography that drives all of existence. And that leads us to the next level, the next level of recognition and understanding of a divine that's beyond existence, that actually can change and, and suspend and transform the very laws of nature. And that's Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, to go out of the Mitzrayim V'gvulim, to go out of all the constraints and limitations. And when they come together, when one feeds the next, and they both one leads into the next, you have the constant power to be able to help us in all the challenges that we have in life. So it's whether you're dealing with something that is Malubish Bateva, the natural issues, or you're dealing with something that requires an open, revealed miracle, both are, both are there, what it means in practical terms for each one of us is, you know, we live in this world and the world can be sometimes quite um, overwhelming, life. In many different ways, whether it's the, 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 the tedious routines that, that drain us, whether it's sometimes pains and suffering that we go through, different challenges, losses, different things that people experience on a personal level, on a family level, on a collective level. So knowing that every second there's a force, the divine energy within us that is empowering us to experience Gaula, even Gaula, even a Gaula Pratis, it's also Gaula, even though but it's still Shem Gaula Allah. So even though we're still, it says, even after Purim, we still remain subjects of Achashvedish. And right now, we still, until Mashiach comes in the fullest sense of the word, we're still in Golos. But there is Gaula individually and a Gaula like Purim. So it gives us strength to know that we're not alone. And no, there's no burden and there's no challenge in life. That the whole Gaula is really there for us to put the Aleph in to make a Gaula out of it. To recognize that the purpose of the material life and even our routines and the tediousness and the, the, the boredom and sometimes the way it weighs, weighs on us to this apanosa, struggles with livelihood, struggles with children, struggles with different issues that may be personal ones, internal ones, emotional ones, psychological ones, and same with collective ones, where there may be discord, there may be disagreements, there may be conflict, that all of that is really a stepping stone to Gaula. So we have Gaula energy with us, and it's about accessing it, and we access it through joy. And even when Purim is over, we continue that, perpetuating that energy, and it leads us right, mismach, without any hefsek. Other leads right into nis. So even when other is over, you're right away going right now into a new month. And a month that's called HaChidosh Hazel Lachem, as we'll read this week, and we'll discuss shortly, renewal, the month of Nisan, the month of Chedesh HaGaula, called the month of Gaula. Other is called the month of Simcha. 
It also has gula in it, but the gula, chedesha gula, that introduces an energy that is beyond nature. That's why by the Asar Sadibris we say, The question is asked, why we say, I'm, I'm, I'm your God, that created heaven and earth. Because that's nature, that's creating existence. Taking us out of Mshon Begvul means that even in existence where there's a Mitzvah Begvul and a Tzimtzum and there's a structure, the real Chiddush of Anech Hashem that could take us out of the limitations of existence itself, not just create existence, but take us out of its constraints. So that's the Chiddush Agula, so other goes right into that in a way it prepares us for it. If you can discover Gula in nature, now you can discover Gula that's beyond nature. In a sense, saying that in Purim, the Havai is Melubish Beteva. And in Pesach, the Havai is Begoli, Shem Havai. And as such, we have the ability to transcend and get out of all our limitations. Pesach, from the word transcendence, Tzis Mitzrayim. And then, of course, that gives us the power to then extend it throughout the rest of the year. Because we don't say Chasal Sidr Pesach, the Alter Rebbe did not put that into the Agodah, because Pesach continues on the power. So now we're in the weeks in between. And hence, one of the aspects of that is that's why we take a read. Always the last Shabbos in the month of Adar. Or unless it's Shachedish Nisan, we read Parshat Sachedish, which is exactly the story of when God is telling Moshe Rabbeinu that the Jews will leave Egypt. So for this is a good segue to move from the, 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 from other leading us to Pesach to the week's Pasha. So this week's Pasha is the end of Sefer Shmes. We'll read two chapters by Yaakov Pekudeh together. And we also take out a, another Sefer Teda to read Pasha Sachedish, which is the fourth of the four special Pashas, which began with Shkolim. Then we had Zohar before Purim. And then there's Pora. And there's Pasha Sachedish. Hachedish which is the Shabbos that blesses the month of, of Nisan. So Pasha Sachedish comes at the fourth of the four special Pashas, which began with Shkolim, Shabbos Mavarchim Oder, or Shchedish Oder, when it's then. And that led to Pasha Zohar, the Shabbos before Purim. Shabbos after Purim is Pasha Pora, which is about purifying in order to be able to bring the carbon Pesach. And that's Pasha Sachedish coming this week. Which is the Shabbos that blesses the month of Nisan, or if it's Shechedish Nisan, that's when we read it. So the order all makes total sense. So it's going from Purim, then we read Parsha Pura, then we go from there to Parsha Sachedish. So let's now discuss the Chesidus applied to Vayakab Kude and Achedish. So, what are the lessons do we learn from the Vayakab Kude and especially their combination together? This is a common theme that the Rebbe spoke about many times. Interesting, based on the principle that every name, the Hebrew name of something, captures the essence of it. So Vayakel means to gather together the Jews. Pekude means to count, which seems to be the exact opposite of gathering. Gathering is a group, a kehillah. Lahakel kehillahs. Pekude means to count each individual. So there's the famous question. You find it in Halacha, in Gemara, in many places. Which is more important, the group, the synergy of the group, or the individual? And in Teri, you find both. At times you find the importance, the importance of being part of the community and not breaking up way, God forbid. Sometimes you talk about the individual. That you can't sacrifice the entire whole for even an individual. So God forbid... The din is that if the enemy says, give us one individual, we'll save the entire city, you're not allowed to do that. Because every life, it's not quantitative, it's qualitative. So there are areas where you focus on the synergy, the minion coming together, the power and the collective energy, the language of chassidus, era elal kolona, the synergetic effect, which is more than the sum of the parts of an individual, that's vayakil, the power of all of, of everything together, but then Pekude focuses on the individual. This year, they come together to emphasize we need both. And it's a tremendous lesson in life because many people ask the question, 
Because religion demands conformity. Many people think that's the case. But at the same time it says, Chayv Adam Leimah, Bishvili Nivra Elam, Bishvili. The individual, Fikach Nivra Adam Yechidi, an individual, per human being was created as an individual, not as a part of a herd, not as part of a group, like the other animals. Or like the animals, I should say. Why? Because the Yechidi, there's a power of the individual. And as a matter of fact, they complement each other. If you're not going to be an individual the way you should be, the way God created you, unique, you actually compromise the group. So individuality actually contributes to the synergy. Think of the human body. The human body has many different piece, parts. If all the organs of the body said, let's all unite in the name of Ahdus, you'd only have destruction. The heart has to be the heart, the mind, the mind, the liver, the liver, the lungs, the lungs. Every part of the body has to do its thing. And then there's a coordination. Like different, think of a different musicians in a symphony, and they coordinate. That's what creates music. So it's the harmony within diversity. In the language of Chesedah Teferes, the Chesed and Gvura Teferes blends, synchronizes, harmonizes, harmony within diversity. And that's what Vayakab Kudde teaches us. We need both. It begins with the individual. And the, the group enhances the individual. Because when you're with others, like-minded others, each of us contribute to each other, and there's more than the sum of the parts. But never to compromise the individuality. And that's the lesson of Pekudeh. And Bayaka Pekudeh come together. And this is critically important, especially in this time of the year, when we're celebrating. So on one hand, Simcha is, is not Bekrise. We know Simcha is with a group, with a community. But Simcha could also not obliterate, annihilate, God forbid, the individual. And the same thing with Pesach. Korban Pesach is the only korban that has in it elements that's like a korban yachid and like a korban tzibur, as the Rambam writes. There are korbanist offerings that were brought in the base of Midrash that was a korban yachid. An individual brought it as an, as an offering for uh, forgiveness or for uh, atonement or whatever it may be. Then there were korbanist tzibur like Tomid every day, the kar- twice a day, the korban, the Tomid was born, that represented the whole, uh, the Tomid was offered that represented the whole community. And Korban Pesach has qualities of each. On one hand, it's brought by family, family, not one Korban for the entire community, but also has elements that is, Biknufi, that is done as a group, as a, as a community. So Pesach teaches us that the freedom and the goal of Pesach is both collective, but also every individual. There wasn't one person that was not redeemed. So the lesson can be carried into our lives today that often people argue the name of conformity and they ultimately compromise the individual. And sometimes individually cannot compromise the community either. And the truth is both complement each other when it's not driven by ego, but it's driven by higher purpose. Okay. That's one of the lessons that we learn. So one other question came in. What is the first thing they did inside the Mishkin? After it opened for business, after the Mishkins began, was, was, was erected and established, what was the first thing they did? And what lesson is it for us? What lesson is it for us as a first step in making a connection between the holiness of God and the mundane world? Okay, so sometimes good to spell out some very basic things. When you read the Parshas, especially this Parsha, the end of Bukudei, so we know in Truma was the first commandment, Vayukhali Truma, gathered together the donations. And from that, God tells Moshe Rabbeinu, and from that, take the gold, silver, copper, the gold, silver, and copper, silver, the silver, gold, and copper, and all the other materials, and build And then the details are spelled out in the next chapters. And then it talks about how Moshe actually, how they actually built it. In Pasha Bekudeh, at the end, after Moshe gives an accounting, it talks about how the Mishkan was now established. And at the end of the end of Pasha Bakudeh actually tells us that the Mishkan was finished. And the Shekhina, the cloud of glory, rested on the Mishkan. And when the cloud would rise, Mesha was able to enter. And that was a sign that the time has come to travel. But now the cloud had settled. What day was it when this happened? So we know that Nisan was the day when the Mishkan was 
the first day when the Mishkan began to be to serve in the Mishkan. But there were seven days prior to that. It was called Shivasimeh Miluim. Parshas Vayikra Tzav, all the way through, Parshas Nose and, and Baalescha, all are talking that period in time when the Mishkan was established. So if you want to know the chronology, they didn't, there was no travel yet. It's in the middle of Parsha Baalescha, where it says, then the cloud rose. And from here on, now it meant we have to start traveling. Vayala Onon, the Onon rose, and that was a sign that they began traveling through the next journey in the 42 journeys through the wilderness toward the promised land. So the whole Sefer Vayikra, including Bamidbar and Nose, and till the beginning of Baalescha, close to the beginning, is all that time when the Mishkan was established. In that itself, what we read in Parshat Sav, there were seven days called the Shiva Simeh Miluyim, where the Kohanim were being trained how to serve in the Mishkan. And then Vayi Bayeh Mashmini, as Rashi explains, Vayi Bayeh Mashmini, means the eighth day of Miluim, which was Rish Chedesh Nisan. That was the first established day when, the, after the dedication of the temple, came the actual beginning of the service. And Parsha Nosei continues and says, and that's when the Nisim came, the heads of all the tribes, and they brought their offerings to dedication. Rashi actually in Parsha Nosei tells us, to look inside, Rashi says, after he says, it says, Vahi Bayim, Kaleis Meish came the day when Moshe concluded establishing the Mishkan. So it says, that's when So Rashi interprets there, that's exactly what happened. This is like a continuation of Parsha Pekudei that followed the Shiva Simeh and then the Shiva Simeh Meluyim. So he says, because all the seven days of Meluyim, Moshe erected and then assembled and then disassembled the Mishkan to teach them how to do it. But in the, that eighth day, he established it, or the seventh day, he established it, and did not disassemble it. And that was the eighth day, was correct. Then Basheni, the day after that, the second day of Nisan, Bez Nisan, Nisrafa the Paraduma was, was brought, and that purified. So they could serve inside the temple. And Bishlishi Hoyazia was the first Hazia, the first sprinkling, so to speak. Ubishvi Gilchu. So the Taylor then tells us the next thing was that they cleansed and they shaved the Levim. So after the Kohanim were trained, the Levim were trained. And then after that began the regular daily service in the Mishkan as we learn it. So if you want to know exactly what were the first things, this is the this was the system. First was the training. And then that was the process. First, the purification. In many ways, like Pasha Pada purifies in order to be able to bring a carbon. That's why Pasha Chedesh follows Pasha's Pada. As far as was the first service, we know the two opinions of the Rambam and the Ramban, that the Rambam says the main service was offerings, carbonus. The Ramban says the main thing was the Odin, where God spoke to Moshe. And both are correct. God speaking to Moshe is the revelation from above. The carbonuses are offering carbon from word Kiruv for us to get closer and connect and bond ourselves to the divine. So it's mamayla lamata or mamata lamayla in a way. From the top down and from the bottom up, which is asus leil and asus tata. That was the Mishkan. How do you make of a shachanti b'seicham, where the divine rests and dwells among us? So on one hand, you need the divine's presence, which is God speaking by, through the, from the Odin, to Moshe and from that to the Klal Yisrael, to the Jewish people. And you need B'Seicham. B'Seicham is through the Karbonas that we bring, as he explains in Basilegani and many Maimarim, that Odom Kiyakir Mekem, Karbon Hashem, that Mekem, from our animal soul, we dedicate ourselves and we elevate ourselves and align ourselves to God's will and God's purpose and God's desire and plan for us. So the lesson to that is very clear, what that means today even though we don't have a physical Mishkan and Beis Amigdash, but we have the spiritual one. And that's the work we have to do. In a way, it's Teirah and Tefillah. Teirah is God's revelation to us studying Teirah. Tefillah is kar- is became Karbonus, Aveda, that we do from ourselves. And then we, of course, have the Kavashlishi, which is Gemilas Chasodim, acts of kindness, stocket, charity, and every form of way of, of Chesed that we do. And that's how we create the interface between divine and existence. The Dira B'Tachtenim or V'Shachanti B'Sechem.
What is the connection between the new moon and the Egyptian ex- exodus? Which leads us now, let's talk about what's the lessons from Pashtus HaChedesh. So we know Pashtus HaChedesh is read right before, or HaChedesh Nisan, because that's what it's talking about. HaChedesh HaZelachem, this, Ma'ashem, it says, God shows Meshe Rabbeinu. In Egypt, he says, this is the month, this is the moon, Kazer Re'eir Kaddish, that you will sanctify the moon. This is the day that I'm telling you now that in two weeks from now, in the full moon of Nisan, there will be the redemption of the Jewish people. They will leave this God-forsaken place after hundreds of years of Golis. So HaKedosh HaZelachem is actually the beginning of Geula, in Parsha Boy. That's where we read it. What's the connection? So on a very basic level, the word HaKedosh is why month, a month is called Chedesh. Chidosh HaLavona, the new moon. But if you think about it, the new moon represents Yisrael, Damon, Levona. We are similar to the moon, so the moon waxes and wanes, and just about when it disappears, it's only to be reborn again. And that's what Hashem was telling Moshe. The Jewish people will now be reborn, like this moon. And they will come out of this Golis, and they'll become a great nation. They'll march towards Harsinai and receive the mandate, the Torah, and then to the Promised Land, and they will fulfill the purpose for which I've, I've I created the world. Taking the nation out of Mitzrayim to serve God at this mountain. And from that to extend and bring godliness to the entire world. And it all begins with Achidosh Azelachem. So Moshe saw with his own eyes. Every time you look at the moon, and that's why we sanctify the moon every month. Kiddush We look at the moon, the same moon, the same moon there in Alexandria or wherever it was in Egypt that Hashem showed Moshe, we see every month. And, we, and it reflects our lives, and it reflects our cycles, the ups and downs, the waxing and waning throughout history and individually. And, and all, that we are renewed, we will be renewed, and we are renewed, and constantly renewed, and have been renewed, just like the moon is renewed. And that's its message. Renewal. Chidush. So the creation of existence happened uh, 2,448 years before that. That's Bereshit's Baralakim, the Chiddush of the world. But the Chiddush that in the world, to be able to get out of the boundaries and the parameters and structures of the world, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, from Mitzrayim V'gvulim, Anoich HaShem Alekacha, that's Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. So, so it's the Medrash says, that Kovalehem, the Eibishta, when he created the world, he Kovalehem Rosh Hashanah, that's in Tishrei. That's the Rosh Hashanah of Hanogas HaTeva, the natural order. And in the Chiddush Nisan, that's the Rosh Hashanah and the Rosh Chedesh of Geula, experiencing redemption in this world, which is a bigger Chedesh. Like it says, The actions of Tzaddikim are greater than the action of creation. How could you say that? God created the world, Yesh Ma'ayin. So Chesidus explains, because God took from an Ayin and made a Yesh. And Tzaddikim, and Amachum Sadikim, all of us are on the level of Sadikim. We take from the Yesh and we make it an Ayin. Yesh means the substance, the ego, the, pres- the identity of existence, the self contained identity. That's what God created. And we take that identity and we sublimate it and elevate it and refine it toward the Ayin, toward the divine reality, which is a different type of existence. That's why it's called Ayin. Ayin doesn't mean nothingness, it means compared to material, it appears like nothing. But it means it's because it's a different reality, a higher reality. So that's the lesson that we learn, and the personal lessons are very clear as well. As I mentioned before, the moon teaches us that we're constantly capable and will re- renew ourselves. So even when it's wa- w- w- it wanes, the moon, and it may seem that we're almost obliterated, and God forbid there's nothing there, you can't even see anything, the next moment, the moon is reborn. You have to just see it through. You have to see it through. And you see it through, you see rebirth, renewal, exactly as it happened back then when they left Mitzrayim, 3,335 years ago. And the same happens every year, in every generation, we relive and recreate that experience. Okay. So from this, let us move now to... Chassidus applied to the 25th of Adar, being that this week is also Chafei Adar. 
So the segue is again very clear. According to Rabbi Loza, there's Rabbi Loza and Rabbi Yeshua, two opinions. When was creation of the world? Chafei Elul or Chafei Adr? And Teisvis explains, and Kabbalah explains that Izal and the Rebbe reconciles it, that this, both are correct. One is a creation in thought, and one is a creation in action. One is the creation of primus elements, one is the creation of chitzenius elements. Like we spoke about the, order, the, the natural order, or the higher than natural order, supernatural order. So Chafeyodr has that element of creation. Chafeyodr, then six days later, is the creation of the human being. So in the, in the way we count it in Rosh Hashanah, that's Rosh Hashanah. In here, in the Hanog of, of, of Nisan, it's Rosh Chedesh Nisan, when the Mishkan was established. So though Iker Shechina betachtenim Mesa, when the creation, the Shechina was there, but then the sins concealed it, and there was the, the concealment of the Shechina until Avram reversed the process, and Moshe, seventh generation from Avram, v'shachanti b'seicham. That's the Mishkan. And that's in the darkness of the world, which has that chiddush, that from the yesh he makes an ayin. That from the yesh of this world, and the gold, silver, and silver, gold, and copper, and the materials of this world to make it a divine home and dwelling place. So, in that sense, that's what the 25th of Adar is. So it leads us straight, as I said before, from Adar into Nisan. We also know it's the birthday of the Rebetz, the Rebetz Nechayim Mushka. And indeed, in Tav Shem Ches, after her Histalkus, her passing, the Rebbe, though he already had spoken about birthdays, but he formally turned it into a whole movement, a whole campaign of celebrating a birthday, and using her birthday as the catalyst. The Rebbe's in the birthday. But it's also the birthday of the world. It's primis of the world. So the lesson is about our birth, our collective birth, and our individual birth, and recognizing the importance that when we're born is the beginning of our being, of our existence. As the Rebbe said back then in Tov Ches, and wrote about it and edit, edited it and said, it's the most important day in a person's life because it's the beginning of your very existence as an independent entity. And everything else follows from there. And we all know the significance of a birthday. Your unique mission begins in this world. So Chafei Adar has that element, and especially the Neshama side. Chafei also teaches us that. But there, the focus is more creation of existence. And here's the creation of the purpose of existence, the Geula in the, the Geula, the ability to elevate the world and go out of Mitzorim V'gvulim, outside of the limitations, and experience Chayda Nisan, Nisan Nisim, the miracles, that elevate the world to be beyond its natural capacity. Okay. So in Aveda, we know there's two types of Aveda. There's Aveda that you do that's contained, Alpitam Vedas, rational Aveda based on a contemplation that makes sense. And then there's Aveda of Nisi, Aveda Nisis. Going initially from the top, not working necessarily step by step, but from time to time to take a surge a jump, a leap. And that is the second type of Aved. And now, which makes total sense because Simcha Peres together, joy pierces all boundaries. So from the Simcha of Adar and the Simcha of Purim and then the Milan Bekaders that continues from there, we jump right in and leap into Nisan, into Pesach, into from the word Pesach, which means to leap over, pass over. And Aveda means to go not just in an orderly fashion, that at times we go with a whole, initially we go from the top. We don't just work our way like the Rebbe Maharaj said, that the world says that first you try from the bottom, if it doesn't work from Megate Unten, then Megate Meniba, then you climb on top, you go over. I say, initially go over, don't have to begin on a step by step, and just sometimes we have to do things and just take a leap. And that's the work that we have to do in this month as we go into the month of Nisan. Okay. So now to continuing, we have here, first of all, follow-up to quite a few things that were discussed in previous, the previous program, as well as a series of questions around relationships and shalom bias. I felt we'll do a part of that. And hopefully with the time, we'll also maybe do something on prayer. So let's begin with relationships. So, as you may imagine, the 10 years of, of my life has applied relationships, marriage, 
and everything connected to that intimacy has always been a primary topic because it's a, it's a primary issue in people's lives, and sometimes quite challenging. So it's a topic we've gone through many, many times. Many questions keep, but, but being that we are alive, thank God, and their families and their communities and there are spouses and marriages and so on. So questions always keep coming in on this topic. So from time to time, it's worthy to go back and revisit it, even though I've covered a lot of angles. But number one is that doesn't mean all issues have been resolved. And more importantly, there new questions come up that are relevant to the people that are asking them, and I'm sure to others as well. So let me address a few such questions, especially in issues of compatibility and incompatibility around religion and so on. So let's go through a bunch of questions around the issue of relationships. One of the reasons I'm doing it as well, since we're in the month of talking about the moon, so the moon and the sun, Chassidus uses it as an example for a relationship. Yichud Shimshu the sun being the mashpia, za in the language of Chassidus, Zoyer Ampin, the Levana meaning the Makabal, Malchus. So it's the, it's the union of the masculine and the feminine. So it has a connection to somewhat Achedish and to some of the themes that we're addressing as well. So begin with the first one. What can I do about my spouse being emotionally unavailable? I've been struggling with my wife's emotional unavailability and it is starting to, and is starting to affect our relationship. How can I be there for her when she is stressed when at the same time she creates distance. It feels draining trying to reconcile this with respecting myself, my own happiness, and my emotional needs. And I know this frustrates people when I say this, but as always, this is a case-by-case situation. I never like to use any textbook, blanket, generic responses because every situation is different. If you ask me this question in person, I'd probably want to speak to you and to your wife just to understand the dynamics because there's so many factors involved. This doesn't mean I won't comment on this. I will say certain things, but I think it's important always to recognize the nuances, and they're not just nuances. They're sometimes the primary elements are very important in how the communication is in other areas. Where is it really good? Because you always want to build upon which is strong, and then you address the things that may be challenging. Is it always this situation? You say emotional unavailability, meaning period. Has it always been that way from the beginning of the marriage? So these are very important questions to ask when you're addressing a topic like that. And remember, Shalas Chacham Chetzi asking the right questions, wise questions, is have the answer. And yet I will still address it as much as possible, one possibly can without knowing all the details. So it'd be interesting to know what your wife thinks about this question. Does she feel that way as well? And does she have a good reason? Maybe she feels that you may not be available. I'm saying you to the husband here. Maybe she feels that she doesn't think there's an issue. This is who she is. Is she wired that way? Is that how she, her mother is? So it's very important to understand what's going on. Is this deliberate? Is it in response to something? Is it just the way she is? Has it gone through changes? Is it due to different stresses, as you write, and challenges? So overall, when it comes to things like this, especially between husband and wife, or as the closest two people on earth, it's very important that it not be done in any confrontational manner, to talk about it with sensitivity and kindness. Love is always the way to go. You want love from your spouse? Give love. Don't demand it. Don't expect it. Even though you may say, I'm already giving love and so on, you have to water the flower if you want the flower to open up. Now you'll say, one second, what happens if I'm giving love, giving, 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 I'm available, but... She's not available. Or the other way around, he's not available. Okay. So the first thing is there has to be warmth because if you create a confrontation, that's for sure not going to lead to closeness. To, emotion, to demand emotional availability, ask, ask yourself, you think that's going to work? Can't demand it. But if there's kindness and there's love and you don't see it being reciprocated, so sometimes you could bring up not to say why you closed and so on. I wouldn't do it in a demanding way. I wouldn't do it in an accusatory way because that just creates defensiveness and usually brings much more, many more problems. But in a moment where, there, where you're being kind and it's a warm situation, <clears throat> you, you test the waters. You say something that perhaps we want to go out. Maybe let's do something together. You try to elicit it without manipulation. 
You try to call upon things that have worked in the past. That's why it's important to ask the question, how was it in the beginning of your marriage? Has it always been this way? How many years are you married? And if you did have moments, more than moments, of emotional connection, can you revisit re, re, uh, that? Can you reclaim that? And you have to un- ask yourself yes or no. Often it takes two to tangle, so it's hard to imagine, even though there are definitely cases where it's one person, but often it's two people, and people are responding to each other, and really it's important to get to the bottom of it. Now another thing that needs to be taken into account is the empathy. Where, where is your wife at? Maybe she's overwhelmed in life. Maybe there are things going on emotionally, personally. Is she able to speak to you? Maybe it comes down to just you being available. Remember, emotional, emotional availability requires that you also allow yourself to be available that she can speak to you. Now, there's always circumstances where a person may need outside help. So if you try all this and it doesn't work, outside help would mean go to a mutual friend that both of you trust and see maybe that person could help. But I wouldn't do it in a crisis way or a panic way. I would do it again in a very pleasant way, something that you're mutually deciding to do. Because if you're going to slap her right away, okay, so there's a pro- you're saying there's a problem with me and you're taking me now to, to a therapist or to a counselor or to a mashpia or to a rov. Then the, now, good, competent mentor can also advise, and I would say actually to go to a mentor even before you bring your wife there. Maybe the mentor can point out something that you may have blind spots. I'm talking to the husband now. Then ultimately, it may lead that you may need to go to a professional. Maybe there's a form of mild form of depression or maybe something clinical or who knows. Point being is, if you do it in a sensitive way with kindness and not in a way that your ego and vanity gets in the way, usually can make some progress. And then again, as I said, there are details that simply I don't know, so it's hard for me to advise more than that. But I think that's a general principle of how to approach things like this. And what I'm saying is not just common sense, it's also what you see. Well, first of all, um, from the Rabbeim, Achsidus is also common sense. But you also see the attitude, this is a general approach that is a a Torah approach to this whole thing, which is always getting the ego away and not letting it become something you're resentful, resentments and, um, and, uh, and, and, and pettiness that usually don't help, never help actually in these type of situations. Okay. What can I do about the gulf created? How can I bridge the gulf created between me and my spouse due to us not being on the same religious level? Thank you again for your indispensable lessons. I've written to you before about my husband and how he doesn't care to be a good example for our family and community. After listening to your classes, as well as to others who lecture on Shalom Bayis, and also knowing the famous idiom that the negative things you see in others is a mirror in yourself, and that you can't change others, only yourself, I've worked and continue to work on improving my own davening, learning, and being careful with halachas, laws. While my children were small, I, could, I couldn't daven everything, and now that most of them are out of the house, I've gone back to saying karbonus and tachnun for mo- on Mondays and Thursdays, etc. I listened to many shiurim over the internet while cooking, driving. My husband has noticed these things and sometimes makes fun that he's around the Rebetzin, a frumak. Frumak, for those that don't know what it means, a type of like, overly uh, zealous, overly religious. While I feel good about the improvements that I'm making for myself, it hasn't helped my relationship with my husband, which was better before. And I'm noticing even, now, even more now how little my husband knows. Because since we're married 30 plus years, he never learns, he doesn't care to learn, Davin shakris in 10 minutes, including putting on both pairs of film. Sometimes doesn't Davin minchemayrev, and is very lax in his performance of mitzvahs. Halach isn't something he subscribes to in a serious way. How can I continue in this way of improving myself when it doesn't seem to be improving the situation and instead it's widening the gulf between my husband and myself? Okay. So here again, there are many details and many aspects of this. You know, I would focus on in asking you, what are the beautiful things of your, about your husband? What are the things that you love? What are the things that you're drawn to? Why you married him? And number one, let's build on that. So he has many qualities. Secondly, is anything that you're saying here, is it, I don't want to say exaggerated, I trust and definitely believe everything you're saying, but is it that 
dire as you're putting it. You know, people have different, maybe there's areas that he has a lot of commitment to. May not be the things you mentioned. Let's see if there's anything there. But you always have to build on the connection. Based on what you're reading, one can assume, I'm not assuming, but one can surmise that perhaps that's all that's left. But I'm, I'm convinced that after 30 years, you probably have a connection in many areas. What does Shabbos look like? Is there areas that you do respect and able to gain inspiration from your husband? Is it his Avish Yisrael? Is his dedication to his work? I would look for those things and, and build on those. Because you're married. We're not talking about dating, should you continue to date or not. It's a different decision. You're now talking about 30 years after a marriage and children ready that are older. So you have to build on what, we ha- on what you have. And everybody has different ways. Now, why he's this way, I can't analyze. I don't know. Maybe his negative experiences growing up in the yeshiva. He was never inspired, perhaps, by many of the, the halachas, so to speak. But you have to build on what is positive and build on the connection that you do have. And from there, you build out. If you continue to dwell on and focus on these things, it'll just deteriorate your relationship because it's going gonna, it's gonna, to uh, gnaw at you. It's going to eat you up inside. And that can, how could that not ultimately have an effect? You know, his laughing at you could very well be, maybe it's his own inadequacy, or he feels that you're criticizing him, whether you're saying it or not. And I don't know if that's a positive way to go here. So that's a few comments on this topic. And the truth is, it goes also the other way around. You have sometimes the opposite, as I'll read in a moment, where you have a husband that will say, the wife is not religious enough. And... So again, you have to always remember husband and wife are not a mashpia and a makabal in the sense of a rav and a, t- and a student. Your husband's not your rabbi and you're not your husband's rabbi, meaning as a mentor. You're not the halachic expert. You may know a lot, but the most important thing in a relationship is a certain equal partnership here. You're soulmates. So it's important not to become preachers to each other, but it should all be done by inspiration and love. There's nothing like love. When someone you love does something, you, live, you look at them as a living example rather than someone demanding of you. And that's also very important not to be in, that, those, in those shoes because it's the last thing a husband wants to hear, his wife telling him and dictating what to do. The truth is both ways it shouldn't be that way. But especially a man, his ego, his own personality. So it's important that it be done always with kindness as I discussed and described earlier. So now comes the question in another direction. How do I maintain shalom bias when my spouse is doing things that I find questionable? And the person writes it this way. My wife is into doing yoga, and I'm worried about the aspects of Avedah Zara that are involved, idolatry. She does not do the prayers, but I've heard the movements were related to Avedah Zara meaning the prayers of the yoga. At one point, I had a psak that I could do yoga, but that I should change the movements. What is the Hasidic perspective on this issue, and how do I maintain shalom bias regardless of my wife's choices? So let's first address the actual issue before we get into the yoga. This, too, is the same thing. If your wife is finding, a spouse is finding an outlet there, there must be some hunger that she has. Now, if you can find an exodus and show her how to do it that way, not without critique, by all means, that would be the most beautiful thing. But if she's ready into it, I would not make a battle out of it. So we know the Rebbe has already told us when it came to TM, Transcendental Meditation, in Lamed in 1979, the Rebbe has letters to Dr. Landis and uh, Landis and, and spoke about it as well, Fabring, that for those that are not into it, they're not into it, but those that are doing it, try to do it in a kosher way. And there's, there's a book called Kosher Yoga, actually. I helped the author give some guidance that you could, some of the principles, it's like exercises that can be done. It does not necessarily, it's not built in necessarily the idolatry. So there are ways to do it that you need to talk to a practitioner or to halachic experts that can tell you how that should be done. We'll talk about that in a moment. But regarding the relationship is what I wanted to speak about, is the key thing is not to become critical. If you have a suggestion, of how to do it in different ways, by all means. But if it becomes critical, it become, if you become critical, it will become a confrontation. And that never leads to good results. So, so with that, 
I will then say, um, maybe it's time to start learning chassidus with your wife, in alibe denafshe, meaning really that touches your heart and soul and her heart and soul, and discovering chassidus really is the spiritual ways to grow to a greater places. There's also the physical exercise of yoga. That's another thing, the disciplines. So that, as I said, can be done in different ways. And that leads me to that question that was asked, is yoga kosher, essentially? So I said there are ways that it can be, and there are books already written about it, and there are people who can help with that. And that's pretty easy to find online, and that's how I would um, guide you with that. But you see here, it goes both ways. Sometimes it's the husband, sometimes it's the wife, but essentially it's the same approach that has to be taken. Not critical, not negative, and find alternatives. Find something that's positive. Like you see someone reading a book that you think is inappropriate, sometimes you have to overlook it because you don't have control over it. And it won't help you criticizing. But, this, you know, but saying, I just read a great book here. Like in other words, in that way, but not manipulative and not in any way that's dis- disingenuous. These things have to be done with subtlety and diplomacy and tact. Okay. The next question, how, what can I do if I love my husband but don't respect him? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, first of all, thank you so much for all your shiurim web, webcasts. I've learned more from you than all my years in Lubavitch's school and high school. Thank you. My dilemma. I love my husband, but I don't, can't respect him. Let me explain. He is good, kind, and, and a calm person. We're married many years, and we're also on, on shlichus. Over the years, he stopped saying chitas, rambam. He never learns. He's not careful about basic halacha. There were times that I saw that he didn't even daven mincha amayrev. When I bring up these topics, he gets upset with me. He usually helps for a while. I explain it's important for the kids to see a positive role model. We already have married children, and it would be nice for their spouses to see a father-in-law with a safer learning. And sadly, because he doesn't learn, he doesn't know. Basic questions to him by our children or our balabatim are answered very vaguely or in an amateur way because he doesn't know Chumash, Nach, Jewish history. I've told him that if he would keep up learning a learning schedule, he would know these things and it keeps your mind sharp. He isn't stupid. He isn't stupid. Years ago, he figured out computers all by himself. When he sets his mind to do, he can do. It's a plain laziness and trying to get away with doing as little as possible in life. While I know that some people are not learners, but then they're usually doers, machas. But I can't say that about my husband either. He doesn't do a pu'ula unless I push him. And at the end, he's happy that he did. So I love him, but I can't respect him. I know I'm not supposed to be his mashpia, but is there any way that I can respect my husband under these circumstances? Is there any way that I can change the circumstances? Thank you. Well, it sounds very similar to the previous question. I'm wondering whether it's even the same uh, person. But regardless, similar response to what I've been saying till now. You must focus on the positive. There's no question about that. You must find a strength. You know, you may be more learner than him, and that may even be, he may be resentful of that. People don't like to be outdone. They don't like to be outshined. You have to focus on what really works. It's hard for me to imagine that he doesn't have any strengths. You know, you, you mentioned some of them. You do love him. You're saying that clearly. What is the love based on? Is it just an emotional thing? So it's about finding the qualities. You know, we talk about Avish Yisrael to strangers. We talk about Avish Yisrael to others. You have to have Avish Yisrael to your husband. And by that consists of finding the strength and, and, and emphasizing that and getting out of your head the things that are the negatives because it's not going to help. And after what you're describing, you're talking about years and years. It's not going to help. You want to say tillim for him, you want to pray for him, you want to get a brochim in Hashemayim, by all means, in your own privacy. But with him, you have to find things and try to be a partner with him, if need be. I mean, I don't really have more to say than that because I don't know, again, the circumstances. I'm sure, does he raise money? Say, you're on shlichas. Does, you know, how does he support himself? Is everything completely on you? I'm, I'm imagining that that's not the case. So I would build on that and grow from there. How do I, here the next question is, see the questions are all similar category. I don't know if I will do all right now because there's so many more. Um, 
I'll do this now, I'll do this one. How, can, how, how do I avoid going into survival fight mode when my wife criticizes me? So here we have the other side of it. How do I deal when my wife comments, complains, criticizes something about me, about me or husband, full of emotion and passion? My reptilian brain goes straight into survival and fight and flight. I have asked her to come less passionate and aggressive, and she tells me that's how, that is how I speak. How do I deal with that? Well, this comes down to what we call uh, self-control. I'm not defending your wife. I'm talking to you right now since you're asking the question. You're going to have to find a way to not allow yourself to go tit for tat and start reciprocating, which means going to that fight or flight mode, the reptilian mind, as you put it. Which means when you see something like that, if you can't respond kindly, then you know, you could say something like something very neutral or change the subject and, uh, and say, I hear you, I'll try my best. Sometimes you have to swallow it. Again, I don't know the whole context. But definitely not going to help if it just becomes a, uh, a fight. Because then it just escalates into a vicious cycle. So I would learn to deflect it. Sometimes through humor, sometimes other ways. Now, the question is how much your wife is aware. Can you really talk about it? I'm not talking about when she's actually criticizing you. In a neutral time, when things are nice, can this be addressed? Can you bring up this topic with her? If you can, then definitely do so. If you need a third party like a friend, maybe in that way, if, again, if it's not going to create more conflict. If you can't do anything about it, then it's part of the picture. You have to, you know, we all have our lives to take the positives and try to, as much as possible, ignore the negatives. Enough positive, that's what should shine forth in this relationship. But definitely don't allow yourself, and this is actually you know, a test that we all have. Allah nizik fa nizamin hashamayim, the Alter Rebbe says in Nagaras Maybe you need, that's what Hashem wants. He sends you someone who's going to criticize. So you should learn the discipline of not responding, be more mature, take the high road. Yeah. Okay. So we'll stop here on these topics, even though there's more. Um, let me just do some follow-up. So as follow-up goes, we addressed a few topics last week. One was, can we ask for wealth? So I have quite a few questions on, uh, well, a few questions on that. And also we talked about mental health and psychedelics. So let me address a little follow-up on those two topics. And um, I think with that we'll have covered good ground. So as far as wealth goes, dear Rabbi, there are stories in the Gemara I believe told about Rabbi Hanina ben Desa who didn't have money and then daven for something which heaven rewarded with a golden leg to a table, but then he realized that accepting the reward here in this world diminished from reward in the world to come. Personally, I want to be successful in business and would like to have abundance with Hashem's blessings. But how is one to go about these types of stories? Makes me feel kind of guilty that I have that if I have in this world, I'm finishing having something in the next world. Also, I heard that a person can have only two out of the three things. Tell the children money. If you have two, one will be lacking. We can't have all. Can you please share what is the perspective to maintain? Well, even though there are stories like this, and they all have absolute legitimacy, but we also have general directives, especially in the later generations where the Rebbe said that today everybody should be blessed with Hashidus. We spoke about this last week with the Purim Tavshin Tezvov story and many others. So we're not talking about getting obsessed. We're not talking about when your whole life is consumed. We have to have betochen. Chassidus explains you have to make ishtadlus, but not overly do, because the God decides. So Hashem should bless you with Hashidus and no, you should not have this issue. First of all, we're not all on the level of Rabchanina ben Desa. Secondly, especially today, we know the Tadus of the Balshemtiv that even when an Id wants Gashmias, it's also because of the Ruchnias in it. So there are individuals, every person according to their level. And there are lessons to be learned from that as well. But regarding yourself, I think the focus has to be, you want to have Ashiris, make your Ishtadlis, ask, pray to God, and God should bless you. 
I don't think we have to feel guilty and so on. I have the world, this world, and the world to come. We're close to the coming of Mashiach. We're going to have all the best of all worlds very shortly, regardless. So that's my response to that. As I said, there are more questions, but I will leave that for future programs. Let me cover a follow-up with mental health and psychedelics. So, got quite a few letters on this, and uh, I'll just read one that just captured the spirit. Says that thank you so much, with all the hysteria around and the hype, you really brought things into total clarity. I shared your message with many, many people, balanced, not going to one extreme or the other, not stigmatizing, but also not worshiping. And I really appreciate that balanced and clear approach that's both based on Torah and and also to deal with the health of our lives and our children and other people's lives in order to be able to live the best possible life. So I really thank you for and appreciate that you addressed it in the most balanced possible way. Okay. It resonated, someone else writes, it resonated with um, whatever I've heard and learned in Chassidus and from the Rebbe. Another person writes, wrote as follows. What is the proper way to approach mental health from a Yiddishkeit standpoint? So I believe I answered that that last week. Mental health is part of health. So there's the Torah, what the Torah tells us to do. And then when necessary, the doctors were given reshus and permission to, but it's, it's a subtle thing because it's not always physical when you're dealing with psychological and emotional health and mental health. So if it's clinical, the thing that needs medication or needs other interventions, it's very clear. So it's no different than any. It's cheli ha-nefesh, cheli ha-guf. But there are things that border on the spiritual that are not about per se, medication. And that's where you really need to be very careful to have the right people that are advising because there are a lot of things that people advise that are completely not al piyalacha that should not even be followed. So you have to find today, thank God, there are chassidish practitioners, people of what I mean chassidish, that they know chassidish, they know teda, and they are looking to find and integrate it with the best that's out there in the psychological world. And that's where, uh, and so basically, Part of means to be the healthiest possible person, healthy in mind, in heart, in spirit. And that's a combination. Now, I absolutely will say that Chassidus has the answers, but sometimes we can't find them. That's why we need people who are, are working with Chassidus and learning Chassidus and learning Teda to draw from Teda Chassidus. And if it needs to be complement, there are methods and there are interventions and there are all kinds of approaches, whether it's therapeutic or whether it's medication or whether it's medicine, one form or another, if done responsibly, in case by case, absolutely, we have to look at every possible way to help get rid of blocks. But we have to know that the way, where we're, not to use anything as a crutch, and there are a lot of things that we have to do naturally, and it takes work. There's no replacement for work. Let's not forget that. Anything that becomes too automatic, I'm not suggesting, listen, we take a, an Advil or we take another medication to get rid of a, haircut, a, a headache. We don't say, we just work on it. Because sometimes you need short-term relief. Sometimes you need a medication to get things going, to trigger things. But that cannot be the way of life. That cannot be something we depend upon. That can be, it's, a, it's an asset. It's a tool. You don't rel- a hammer is an instrument that helps you. It doesn't replace anything. And the same has to be approached with anything around mental health. There's more on this topic as well, but because of time limits, I'm going to stop here. And with that, we'll conclude this episode 441 of My Life Exodus Applied. It's always an honor to share a few words with you and to answer your important questions. So please keep them coming. ChassidusApplied.com is the website where you can submit any question. Nothing is off limits. Nothing is taboo. And you can also find all the archives of the previous 440 and now 441 programs. A continued simcha through this month of Adar as we conclude it and go and march into Smismach Geula Legeula, Geula Pesach, Benissen Nigelu, Benissen Asidn Legeul, Chedesh May this be the month where we finally experience the full Geula Mitzvah Vashlema, where all of us will be in the healthiest we can possibly be 
and ultimately be reunited with all our loved ones. So it should be a Simcha Dika and Geula Dika month and a Simcha Dika and Geula Dika Tomid La'elam Abad. Everyone be well. This has been my life because it is applied every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Thank you so much. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.